From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast, with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT, with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 199 of the Killing It podcast and next week is 200 next week but this is 199 so let's not get ahead of ourselves this is the last show in the hundreds so let's make the most of it yes let's let's do a show (laughs) (laughs) i'll kick us off with something fun what are you proud of but never have an excuse to talk about all right i'll say i am uh I, I I have mentioned this from time to time, but I not often enough. I have a long uh, record of doing radio before I you know got off the track and decided to make money. <laughs> and I know Dave has a lot of experience as well. And it's one of these experiences of sitting in a room talking to yourself and actually uh, having some feedback come out, and then you realize, oh, I'm not I'm not alone in the world. And and sometimes the things I choose to air. Uh, have some value. And uh, I learned a lot of lessons from 10 years of doing radio, and I don't get to do it anymore. But uh, it's a huge piece of the history of how I got to be who I am today. Nice. And, and, And that is, I believe, a very valuable experience because you have to be able with just your mind and your voice, be able to engage people and keep them coming back. I think that would be a resume item for you doing what you do right now. Um, See, I unfortunately, I talk a lot about the things that I'm proud of. <laughs> nobody is nobody is surprised about that, and I'll shoehorn it in if I need to, right? Uh, my children, my grandchildren, uh, I'll bring stuff in whenever in the heck I, I feel like I can bring it in. But if I go back to it, uh, there is a surprising amount of life that works better because I was an Eagle Scout and at this age, nobody brings that stuff up anymore, and it feels just a little bit silly uh, going back there. But I will tell you, I can start a fire. I can I, I can build a shelter. Uh, I, I could be successful in the zombie apocalypse because I actually learned all that stuff, and they stitched a badge on a sash for me. So uh, uh, if anybody needs to know how to start a fire or build a shelter, you let me know. I, well I, I got all that stuff there. Funny. So, so I'm... Mine is Carl's brought it up because there's a little element of it, but it's it's the broader picture. So anybody who knows my when I do my quip story, right? I always say like, ah, oh, I have a degree in computer science. It's always part of my story of an entrepreneur. But what's missing in that statement is from the College of William and Mary. Uh, right. <laughs> I'm incredibly proud of like my time in Williamsburg, Virginia, because it's a liberal arts college. I was required to do writing. Uh, but also my like time there, like like if, if anybody knows, like I'm super into it still, like my connection to the college, my friends, my like my closest friends, all people I went to college with that I still talk to daily. Like we've got a Slack group that is const- with channels for everything that we're interested in. Uh, I'm super connected to that and I don't generally have an opportunity to talk about it outside of the context of people that are very close friends that know that origin. I'm super proud of my degree and I'm super proud of the time that I spent there because I learned so much. Like Carl's illusion, like I was a radio jock 
at William and Mary. <laughs> I did live <laughs> events at William and Mary. I ran like I was in a fraternity. I like learned to socialize and party and run parties and like all of that stuff. So for me, it's like, what am I proud of? Oh, I'm super proud of my connection to the college. And uh, it's funny because uh, because of I, I own a certain certificate in radio broadcasting. I have worked in a radio station in every city I have lived in since I left home. Ooh, nice. Look at you. <laughs> nice. I only have the one, but I did have an FCC license for a very long time. <laughs> an an I, actual broadcast profession. I, I think you'd be an idiot to pay me to run a radio station, but I have the license to do it. <laughs> but I would try. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I've got a lot of songs on my iTunes. I don't know about you, but uh, let's go. Every client needs cyber protection, but that doesn't mean service providers have to deploy a jumbled patchwork of solutions to get it done. Modern protection starts with a Cronus Cyber Protect Cloud. A Cronus combines backup, anti-malware, endpoint protection, management, and robust ransomware defense all from a single console. That's why successful MSPs use a Cronus to generate more recurring revenue and reduce churn. It's easy to get started at acronus.com. So topic today, we'll start out with, uh, again, we'll go back to AI and uh, the evolution of automation and so forth. And one of the things we always have to talk about is there is a potential negative side to all this stuff. And we love, like we're completely enamored on this show with GPT chat and a, a lot of the things that are be the future. But we also have to be aware of the, the kind of the potential darker side. One of the things that we're pointing to in an article today is about the algorithms of management. Human beings are fundamentally lazy. So if they don't have to make a difficult decision, they won't. And so what's happening is we're seeing an evolution of technology that allows managers to let the algorithms make the decision instead of having them make difficult decisions. And as you can imagine, this happens most in things like uh, personnel and HR issues, right? So what's happening is that we're sort of turning over to the algorithms some of the elements that are potentially the pickiest and most difficult elements of running a company. And so the, the next evolution level has to be, okay, how do we manage the algorithms and how do we train them that there are certain decisions you don't make and certain things that we just can't take into consideration in the workplace. Um, and it's sort of interesting to live at a time where the, the I wouldn't say that these things are becoming self-aware, but the power of these algorithms is something that we have given up that power and we may end up paying the price for it with regard to recruiting and hiring and managing people uh, on a day-to-day -day or a month-to-month -month basis. So it's a, it's a fairly complicated topic, but it's one of these things where I think we're going to be readdressing this, whether we like it or not, for a long time to come. I saw this movie. Things went horrible in this movie. <laughs> yeah, the movie from the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties. I've seen this movie multiple times. And like, I, mean, I think of the the movie Elysium, the the Matt Damon one, where they're the you know, where they where the rich people escape off into the sky and the poor people live on the ground still. I think about that movie as this example because of the the loops that they get caught in because of the systems that are managing them. And I totally go immediately to this. It's like, oh yeah, what can possibly go wrong with this? Um, you know, so much, guys. Like, and, and, and this is where 
I actually you know, I make the joke because I want to highlight the area that I say, I think the area of expertise is about applying the technology in the right places at the right time. I think these are great supplemental tools for decision making, but there are certain areas where it's like, oh, do not take a human out of <laughs> certain elements of the conversation because it's your competitive advantage. Like I think smart humans pulling the, the levers and being given better insights and better information to make those calls with, that's the, the organizations that are going to do it. The lazy ones are the ones that are going to turn it over and say, we're not going to get it. We're, we're going to make the think that we're going to get to some level of efficiency by turning it over. That's actually, in my mind, a lazy approach to using this technology. Because by the way, it is harder to do what I'm talking about. It is harder to train humans to then use the tools effectively and leverage them that those that spend the time doing it will do better. Oh, and by the way, I keep circling like, oh, technology providers that help your customers do that, you will also do better by enabling them that way. See, you're, you're right on to, I think, the heart of the issue here. There is a difference between leadership and management, and those two things are both separate from being a very good technician at whatever it is that you do for a living, right? It, it, and the different the the skill that separates those two capabilities of leadership management versus being really good at your job is the combination of intuition synthesis and insight, right? In other words, I've been through this situation before. I kind of understand where it might be going. I can bring together multiple pieces of information. I can synthesize them to get a better picture. And then I can use that to make a decision that's bigger, better than what it could have been, could have been without my insights going into the situation. I think if there's one universal complaint that people have in the world, it is the inefficiency of bureaucracy. I understand that algorithms are intelligent. You can have tens of billions of factors considered in, and you can have many rapid decisions made, almost as close to real time as you can get. But if you hard write the rules into any situation and the system can only give you a response based on a prompt gone through a set of multivariate factors, you will just get really fast bureaucracy. If you try to say the policy in this situation, whenever A and B happen, is that we will do uh, option A and option B and option C and only in that order you will find yourself going through unnecessary layers of inefficiency, inaccuracy, outdated approaches, and everybody's going to sit around and go, damn, this is really inefficient. Why do we do it this way? Well, because the algorithm is only capable of giving you the responses on which it has been trained. It cannot provide insight, and that is the definition of leading humans to better outcomes and better performance. And I, I just want to get back to the fact that, you know, I think people are fundamentally, maybe they're not lazy, but they're at least risk averse and turning stuff over to robots is easy. And, you know, one of the things this article points out is everybody's afraid that the, the workers are going to get replaced by robots. It's much more likely that their managers are going to get replaced by robots first. And we need to keep an eye on that and make sure that we don't have things work their way into the system that are evil by default and that's just standard operating procedure. Is that a setting evil by default? 
<laughs> you know, I, it might not be labeled that, but it certainly seems to be in most systems. But we're going to move on to our second topic here, guys. Um, you know how some companies make more money than you and I do? Uh, you sit around sometimes and you look out there in the world and you go, that guy's got a billion dollars and I don't. And I wonder why. In, in hindsight, you can find the reasons why. And we're going to point out an article here that might indicate why the folks at Microsoft continue to make more money than the others of us do. Uh, as Carl mentioned back at the beginning of our conversation here, we're fascinated with ChatGPT. We think that while the entertainment value is certainly diverting and, and it's, kind of, it's kind of fun, uh, it has some intelligent applications. We've been reading about some of the evil applications of malware writers using this to write more intuitive and better um, uh, phishing emails. Uh, as a tool, we're fascinated with this. This thing. But none of us had the foresight to just go in and buy that thing and lock it up. But Microsoft did. Uh, the headline that is coming out here is that they've agreed to put down another billion dollars that is going into uh, this investment in OpenAI, which owns ChatGPT. And then it's going to be used in Microsoft technologies. I see a ton of very interesting scenarios. Guys, what do you think about Microsoft essentially locking up ChatGPT as a sub-feature of PowerPoint and Word? <laughs> well, I think, first of all, whew, glad that I own some Microsoft. Wish I bought uh, more of it last week. But um, we, we always look to the future of things like Microsoft and we think, uh, how much more can you change Word or, as you say, PowerPoint or Excel? 99.9% um, .9 of the features I use were available 15 or 20 years ago. Um, but I think that the, the interesting part is going to be to build it into things like Azure and a lot of the cloud decision-making systems. And so I think Microsoft is going to find more good, juicy ways to use this than you can possibly imagine um, and I and I don't think it's all along the ways that some of us have been using it. I think they're going to use it for programming, but I also think they're going to use it to make services available so that their office products are at a level that we can't even imagine now. And between this and our next topic, I think that there's going to be a lot of future around having conversations that make some sense. Uh, everybody knows Bing has sucked since it was invented. Um, and part of the reason is that um, it can't it can't figure out a way to get to be better than Google. Well, if Google could have a follow up question, that would go a long ways. GPT actually gives you a step in that direction to be able to have a conversation with your computer that can help, can help you improve your productivity. So I think people like me, I can't even imagine what the next version of Office will look like with GPT built in. Well, so it's funny because Microsoft is the company that we all sort of sleep on sometimes. They, they don't get quite the respect that they deserve oftentimes for, for what they've done. On top of the fact that they are a very mature organization from the way that they engage. They're not, you, you'll note, they are not in the controversy that several of their colleagues are from a regulation perspective, from a scrutiny perspective, because they're the grown-ups in the room. They've already been through that process once, been slapped and learned how to be a grown-up company uh, and really take that responsibility seriously. I mean, I, they haven't been rewarded by the, the, mar the, quote, unquote, the markets 
in terms of stock, but they certainly have been rewarded from the perspective of the revenue that they do and the way that they the business is run. Uh, I think Satya Nadella is, is proving to be quite the visionary in terms of the way that he's invested and spent their time. Uh, and I, I will say that I, I think you know there's a lot of this that makes a lot of sense. Somebody had the opportunity. They put their money where their mouth is because on top of that, the product is run on Azure, <laughs> all of the stuff that's needed. And they, they have seen the connections of all their stuff. It's funny that we all make fun of Bing when it's fine. Like if, if you actually use it, it's a perfectly acceptable search engine, particularly when you compare against this competitor, Google, that we're all used to using, that has become less fine. Have you actually tried to get good results out of a Google search and gotten past the 5,000 ads and the placements and the sponsors and the hidden information? Like they have degraded the product enough and we just haven't broken the, the cycle. If you took away Google and you put Bing in, it's fine. Now, Carl's right in to say that it hasn't leapt beyond, right? It's not a better product. And Google, particularly when they launched, did a really, really good job of that. But you look at a technology like ChatGPT and you say, well, yeah, if you can fuse those two together and do it in a safe, responsible way, that Microsoft has done a really good job of, prom of showing that they are the safe, responsible organization. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, they've got all the pieces for this to be quite a success. Well, and, and that this is the thing that I find interesting. The easy user scenarios, the things that you go, oh, well, yeah, you could put it into Excel and Word. And it could give you, like, I'm trying to write this memo to my staff, and I want to put that into a Word document. Can you give me some, some verbiage about how to express what I am thinking? And it pops back, and we all go, okay, cool. That's what we're using ChatGPT for right now. But one of my hardcore predictions for 2023 is that this will be the year when the citizen developer or business IT becomes a legitimate widespread mass market phenomenon, right? I've been going on about low-code, no-code application development for a couple of years now, and I think that that's fascinating. And while those tools are getting better and they're getting more accessible, I think that this acquisition inside tools that we already know are going to move us to the level where a business person with zero development capabilities could just say, well, I just want the system to do this and it will. Right. Imagine the scenarios inside a super smart Excel spreadsheet where you can just say, I just want to have a formula in, a, in this table that will let me do A, B and C. And then it writes the logic for you. That's a radical advancement on Excel. That's, you know, we all know those super advanced users, the power users in the world who can make a magic spreadsheet do the things that software is supposed to do. And you look at how many hours and days and months and years they spend fine tuning those things. Imagine if you could just ask Excel and it would do it for you radical advancement in that capability. And Carl, that goes back to your examples. It, like we haven't even touched on the ideas of what it could do at the Azure level, what it could do inside the business application level, where you could go for systems integration and some of the insights on how to tune your virtual machines on Azure so that you get better performance and better reliability. Right now we pay very talented individuals, very high salaries to do those things. What if it's just designed into the system? That's remarkable. I think that that is uh, some really exciting technology. And again, if it's out there in the world and you and I know how to use it as a tool, that's nice. 
But if you own that tool and you can embed it in your products, boy, that's a super smart business. Well, and imagine taking Power BI and giving it to a researcher who takes any database they want and then says, uh, hey, chat, uh, speculate about what if we did this and that and that and what's a good surrogate measure for this because we can't measure it very accurately, da-da-da-da-da, and kind of have a back and forth with a strategy session with your computer about the best ways to, to do research. Or, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but thankfully we only have 30 seconds left, uh, imagine a gaming environment where you strategize about what your next move would be and have a back and forth conversation with your computer before you make your next move. And let's be very clear here. Microsoft made an initial investment earlier of a billion dollars. They are seeing the, that engagement payoff now. They are not an owner of, 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 the, of the product. And, the, and they are looking at doing additionally. At the time of this recording, they have made no announcements about acquisitions and stuff. So let's be super They don't clear. own, but they control. But the other thing is that that also means if somebody else, a competitor, decides how to take the, a gaming system to the next level, Microsoft still makes yes. money. And, and by the way, you know, my, again, to be fair, Google has their Lambda technology that's out there too. They, they may make another move. But sadly, we're out of time on this one. So I'm going to move us on to topic number three. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of the, the, converse, the, the never ending conversation around supply chain. Uh, and I'm going to link to two things that Apple's been up to. First, there, there's an announcement that they are looking to stop using the Broadcom chips to work on their own communication chips. For anybody who's been an Apple follower for a while, know that they've been looking at trying to figure out a way to do this for a while to get all of their Wi-Fi, cellular, Bluetooth into a single chip of their own control. And additionally, there's also discussion that they're looking to have move their own uh, glass and surface their creation of the screens into an in-house piece, potentially starting with the Apple Watch and moving on to iPhones from, from that perspective. Uh, you know, is, is the, the movement into centralization again we used to we, we had moved to this piece where you were this model where you were leveraging components from elsewhere and all around and being a very good assembler but it seems particularly with apple leading the way but they're not alone on this google builds chips too that many are starting to move all of this back in gents do you, do you see a shift in supply chain is this a specific strategy or so, what's it reacting to yeah, I think one piece of it is obviously the supply chain. I think a more interesting piece is imagine if you're going to go out to Broadcom and you've got an idea for a next level product development that you have to define for an outside company so they can build the hardware so that you can build the software. Well, that means Broadcom now has some idea of where you're going and what they're doing, and they can build chips that other people can buy, right? It's easier if you keep it in-house and close to the vest. And my suspicion is that this is going to be related to, and I, and I won't say Siri out loud, but you say, okay, wiretap. I, I want to you know, connect you to the next level of voice interactive commands and so forth. Uh, you might have some product development that you want to be able to keep 100% in-house. Well, if you're also defining the chips and building the chips and not outsourcing that piece of it, it allows you to really do some next level stuff without having the outside world have any clue whatsoever of what you're up to. And my suspicion is, is that 
Apple is probably investing in some very next level stuff that none of us have got a clue about, but they've got kind of their own little, uh, you know, Xerox Park, uh, you know, Apple Park uh, thing going on where um, they are probably going to be working on some very, very cool integrations. And those chips control more than software, more than devices. They also can control some technologies that are just barely on the horizon. So I really think they're probably investing in being more forward-looking than they've been before, which is saying a lot for Apple. <laughs> yeah, that is that is saying a lot. But I will say this is a battle with three distinct fronts where there is there is value to be won on all three fronts, right? There's economic value in vertical integration in the supply chain, eliminating the, the boundaries between us and the margins that get overlaid on all of that stuff, as we have all experienced in the last couple of years, eliminating supply uncertainty and allocation and shortages. Uh, there's, there's a lot of economic benefits by vertically integrating the supply chain. On a second level, there are very many benefits around system design, just technology design and deployment. The concept of system on a chip is not new, but it does create meaningful performance advantages, right? When we eliminate physical distance and, and buses and barriers that go on inside of just the raw hardware design, it allows me to improve the performance, to reduce the cost of manufacturing, and, and to further miniaturize the systems that I'm able to deliver. Significant improvements to be made in the system on a chip world. But the third one, and Carl, it's where you were going, and I think it's where the real win is. It is the preservation or the advancement of IP. If I don't have to tell trading partners what I'm up to, I can have a product announcement that is legitimately surprising. And that is the kind of stuff that I think is really, really interesting. Uh, there's an entire... I don't know how many heads to the Hydra there are in an industry around rumors about what Apple is about to release. Uh, there, there are predictors and there are leakers and there are intuitors. There's all these different methods, but Apple rarely has a product announcement, as good as they are, as much theater and drama as they build in to their new product announcements. Most of us know exactly what they're about to announce, and we're just waiting on the timing, and we're disappointed that that one didn't happen in this release. It's going to be delayed into the next release. Imagine a world where somebody with the reach and the clout of Apple could draw the curtain back on a big stage and go, guys, we have something new that is going to legitimately blow your mind. When that used to happen back in the Steve Jobs days of the, oh, and one more thing, um, we were giddy about those things. It was legitimate appointment television. That's gone away largely because it is a very diverse supply chain and, and manufacturing process. If Apple can bring that stuff all back in-house, there's economic gains, there's system performance gains, and there's legitimate drama. And uh, quite frankly, that's where the money is. So may maybe. So I'm, I want to push back. Some of the reason we can make predictions the way that we do about Apple is because uh, the, in a maturing market, there is less to create. And if you look at, at you know, Daniel Burroughs and his, his uh, flash forward approach, I mean, you can make predictions. Will there be a faster chip? Yes. Will there be a smaller chip? Yes. Will, thing, will prices continue to come down? Yes. You, there is a lot of things that people think are unknown that are truly known. 
right? They will make a new version of many, pro like there will be a new iPhone. Yeah, of course there's going to be a new iPhone. Will there be a new iPad? Yes, there's lots of this that you can make very easy predictions about because it's not that variable. Yes, Ryan, you're right. Like they may be working on something entirely new, right? That is that is possible. But it is much more likely in my mind to say, like, say, like, well, they're just refining the way they make money on this very mature thing, you know, mainly the iPhone, right? <laughs> they have spent a lot of time figuring out how to make it. It's a premium product. And the more they can keep squeezing out of it, it makes a lot of sense. Yes, it has derivative value to the ability to create this new thing. Uh, but I think from my perspective, the core bid is, is like, look, they're just squeezing every little bit of value out of that because it is, I mean, at this point, it's 16 years of iPhones. Like <laughs> this is this is something that's been around for a little while. And by the way, they are standardizing the way they approach this and know that no matter what they do, if they want to build something new, this is going to be a core component. It will communicate with the internet. If you build anything right now, you're going to be doing that piece. So you're going to want to own that piece. See, Dave, that's where I think it gets exciting. In the form factor of a phone, of a tablet, of a computer, it's interesting. But in the form factor of like legitimate applications of IoT with smart connected devices, if you control your system on a chip in the communication vector, now everything can be intelligent and it can be, it can be miniaturized and it can be much more capable because it doesn't have to have a motherboard. It just, it, it just is a system that you can put into things in a micro basis. I think that's where it could get really killer interesting is in smart connected devices in the IoT world. And that's that's a whole new world that Apple hasn't been playing in that might be another revenue stream. Well, and to final note, which is, you know, Tesla actually uh, added a few extra margin points in the middle of the supply chain issues because they could reprogram the chips that they made to do other things where the chips being bought by Ford and General Motors could only do the thing that they were made to do. And I think that there's sort of a lesson there that if you if you build your own chips and you make them programmable, you can do all kinds of stuff and they might potentially be able to, years down the road, deploy an update that we can't imagine today. So anyway, it, I think it's all good news for anybody uh, even if you're not an Apple fan. Good thing you're running out of time because you're flirting very close to someone I don't want to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> we agreed. Here, here. And, and on that happy note, we come to the end of episode 199 of the Killing It podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.